Funhouse Kicks, where we talk about sneakers and we'll make you an expert on the topic. Today, I wanted to devote an entire episode to a topic I've touched on in previous episodes on the show, and that is where the sneaker industry is at in 2023. The sneaker industry is in a very unique position in this third year of the second decade of the new millennium. And that is that for sneaker lovers and collectors, we are experiencing something we have not since well before the pandemic. And that something is a buyer's market. We are enjoying an embarrassment of sneaker riches in the form of sneakers sitting on shelves, being easily attainable and even going on sale on a regular basis. Sneakers that just a couple of years ago would have been gobbled up in minutes and resold for hundreds above retail are now sitting on websites like Sneakers and the Adidas Confirmed app for hours if not days before selling out. In 2020, Jordan 1s would sell out instantly no matter the color. Now we have beautiful colorways dressed in buttersoft leathers that either take all day to sell out like the recently released Jordan 1 UNC toe or go on sale like the Jordan 1 Taxi, both of which sneaker people predicted would be a problem, which in sneaker speak means that consumers would be climbing over each other to acquire a pair. The truth is that no sneaker is a guaranteed instant sellout anymore, and the shoes that have sold out and resold for well above their MSRP, such as the Jordan 4 SB, the Doritos SB Dunk, the Cortez Air Max 95s, and of course the Travis Scott Jordan 1 Low Olive, all have relatively predictable reasons for doing so. The SB4s were initially released in very limited quantities in select boutique skate and sneaker shops. The Cortez 95s were released in sort of a treasure hunt scenario in select cities around the world. And the Travis Scott Jordans, well, they're Travis Scott Jordans. I I don't know if anyone is actually paying over $1,000 for those shoes anymore, but resellers are still pricing them at that markup automatically. The only shoe that's received significant hype that has surprised me this year was the Doritos Dunks. Canvas skate shoes that pay tribute to a Mexican soft drink would not have struck me as a sneaker of the year contender, but the people have spoken and a pair of those kicks in my size go for nearly $800 CAD, which is around $600 over retail. I suppose it's not unlike the SB Dunk collaboration with Ben and Jerry's on the Chunky Dunkies. Uh, something about junk food and SB Dunks just seems to strike a chord with people. But more surprising than the shoes that do well are the shoes that don't. Sneaker consumers seem entirely uninterested in OG retro Jordans these days. Shoes that in past have sold out quickly and generated high resale value have been sitting on shelves and going on sale. The Jordan 13 Playoffs, for example, which dropped in February and were last seen in 2017, can be found for retail or less wherever those shoes are sold, despite the high quality of the materials, the correct shape, and OG detailing. Other recent retro Jordan releases that have been underperforming are the Jordan 4 Uh, the Jordan 14 Laney, the Jordan 7 Chambray, and the Jordan 5 Burgundy. The Jordan 1 Low Black Toe, which just dropped a week ago and was projected to do very well and generate significant hype, can currently be bought for retail on resale sites like StockX, Goat, and eBay. Jordan collabs like Tayana Taylor's Jordan 1 High Zoom Air Comfort 2, Union's AJ1 Low AJKOs and Amamanier's Jordan 12s are all available in plentiful stock for retail or less. 
and new colorways of the Jordan 1s, 2s, and especially 3s, including a PE that Jordan himself wore when he played with the Wizards, called, obviously, the Jordan 3 Wizards, have all been forgotten before they even had a chance to be remembered. Adidas has had a little more success recently after a a historically bad plummet in their earnings numbers post-Kanye, and that success is, ironically, thanks to Kanye and the remaining Yeezy stock they're finally selling off. But even some of those shoes are having trouble selling, despite it being the last chance Yeezy sneaker fans will likely ever have to purchase a Yeezy Adidas product. Elsewhere in Adiland, Bad Bunny's continued collaboration with the Three Stripes continues to find decent enough success, although his campus lights aren't nearly as celebrated or as in demand as his forum lows were. Adidas just released another batch of sneakers and clothing in collaboration with Gucci, a partnership which people continue to like but which remains well out of the price range of most consumers and which has been easily attainable for those with the wallets for it. They've also found a surprising amount of success this year pushing the Samba line, a shoe which has become the go-to in retro footwear classics and is eclipsing other retro pushes of similar shoes like Reebok with their Club C line. The Sambas also have benefited recently from collaborations with the likes of Wales Bonner, Sporty and Rich, and Kith, which have all been well-received. Speaking of which, Kith's 8th Street Sambas, a collaboration with Adidas and Clark's, have been some of the most hyped and celebrated shoes we've seen this year. Kith also found a hit with their Marvel Asics collab, thanks mainly to a clever gimmick Kith devised, wherein the seven Marvel colorways done in the colors of X-Men characters all arrive in the same box, meaning you don't know which X-Men color you're going to get until the box and bag inside the box are torn open to reveal the shoe inside. Ronnie Feig said he did this to encourage trading and to encourage people to actually open up and wear the shoes rather than keep them in dead stock condition in a storage room somewhere waiting for their resale value to rise. The gimmick worked. It created a lot of hype around the shoes, a lot of unboxing videos, and as Feig predicted, a lot of wheeling and dealing in trades for fans to get the shoes they wanted. ASICS has had a successful year reaping the benefits of the somewhat out of nowhere Y2K runner boom. A sudden interest in and resurgence of the mesh covered running shoes from the early aughts. ASICS Gel Kyono 14, Gel Nimbus 9, Gel 1130, Gel NYC, as well as the ever present Gel Light 3s and 5s are all sneakers that ASICS has remained stubbornly committed to and are all sneakers that are suddenly trendy and in high demand. Nike, never one to let a trend pop off without pretending they were the sole cause of it, has seized upon the mesh runner boom by pushing hard their Vomero 5 silhouette, which has been around in retro form for a few years, but now sees a new colorway seemingly every week. It's interesting to note that when Nike was getting ready to push the V5 and images of the shoes in an assortment of greys were teased, they were heckled by sneaker people for their resemblance to New Balance runners, their 99X line of sneakers in particular. And to be fair, New Balance has had the market cornered on grey-colored runners with mesh-covered panels for several decades now. The NB30 and 860V2s fit the most comfortably amongst Y2K-looking runners like the Cayano 14 and the Vimero 5, despite their origins dating back to 1992 and 2011, respectively. 
Thanks to their sleek sports car looking profile with racetrack shaped overlays and chunky absorb midsole cushioning and their affordability and availability, they are obvious choices for everyone from supermodels to dads in Ohio, as the saying goes. They also have cheap mesh-heavy classics like the 574 and 327, and of course, their more expensive, more premium lineup of made-in-USA and made-in-UK offerings like the 990 V1 through V6, the 996, the 997, and 998, as well as the newer, more bulbous 9060 and the return of the 580 in a multitude of colors, a Japanese-exclusive version of the made-in-USA 585. To be honest, New Balance has such a rich, successful history making precisely the type of airy, thick-soled runners which are now such hot fashion accessories that accusing every other brand of making shoes that fit that same bill of plagiaristic intent would not be unfair. But does New Balance enjoy hype? Do they sit or sell out? And do their collaborations move the cultural needle? There actually was a New Balance collab that fit that bill, but really only one so far this year, and that was the Action Bronson collab on the 990 V6, which dropped in a bright and loud colorway called the Baklava back in March and followed up with a more subdued, more classically pleasing color configuration of blues called the Lapis Lazuli this past June. Both colorways enjoyed a healthy amount of buzz and admiration prior to their release. Both sold out in minutes and both shot to several hundred dollars above retail on the resale market just a few days after they initially dropped. But as has been the case with most every sneaker, hype or not, that is released this year, the value of the shoes has come down considerably since their release and you can now get the Lapis Lazuli ones for just a smidge above retail. Which is definitely a trend this sneaker year. Along with sneakers that are now sitting on shelves that used to sell out instantly, you have sneakers that do sell out, resell for a bundle, and then quickly plummet in value. Why? Because there are just so many sneakers that are available for retail or less these days that paying inflated prices for the most hyped product has stopped making sense, especially if you're looking to make a buck off the shoes yourself. I know someone who paid $650 Canadian for the Jordan 4 SBs when they first came out and held on to them too long. Now he'd be lucky to get $550. So that's one reason the sneaker industry is what it is today, which is to say, available. That buying and selling sneakers is no longer a guaranteed way to make extra income. Viral social media posts of resellers sitting in front of several hundred pairs of Jordans that they paid 10 grand for and will make 30 grand in profit from have become viral social media posts of resellers sitting in front of several hundred pairs of Jordans that they paid 10 grand for and will be lucky to make half their money back. This, of course, makes sneakerheads, the true sneakerheads, the ones that actually wear the shoes they collect, ecstatic. There is no sweeter glee than seeing resellers lose thousands on shoes they thought they'd be flipping for a 300% return on their money. Yes, those days seem done. The get-rich-quick click that flooded the sneaker industry during the lockdown year of the pandemic, now realizing that making a couple of hundred off of a shoe has become, if you're lucky, making 20 bucks off of a shoe, have fled. Maybe they've gone back to buying and selling Pokemon cards again. Who knows? But that also has had a trickle-down effect on those of us who don't consider ourselves resellers, at least not in the negative sense. 
not in the sense of paying off managers at Foot Locker to sell you high heat product out the back door or buying computer bots to win raffles for you online. If anything, we're resellers, but only as far as our personal collections are concerned. Because most of us who collect shoes aren't rich and don't have connections at Nike, Adidas, or New Balance that enable us to get shoes for free or at cost. So sometimes the only way to afford new shoes is to sell the old ones. I've said this before on this show, but my goal is to keep my collection to 100 pairs or less. 100 pairs of shoes to someone who isn't obsessed with shoes is a lot of shoes. Far more than anyone would or should need, even if they walk or run for a living. But for a sneakerhead, it's actually quite conservative. Listen to many of the other pods dedicated to the sneaker life and you will undoubtedly hear hosts speak of personal collections that number in the hundreds, if not thousands of pairs. You'll hear hosts talk of their most recent sneaker pickups that week and rattle off five or ten new sneakers and rattle off five or ten more sneakers that they're looking forward to picking up in the weeks to come. For the sneakerhead, the constant buying and selling and watching and anticipating and in general all-consuming presence of sneaker acquisition is never truly satiated, like a belly that never feels full. But again, most of us are not rich and are not friends with the higher-ups at our favorite sneaker brands, so what is a boy, in my case, to do? Sell. Sell shoes to buy shoes. If one comes in, one goes out. But that's getting harder to do in 2023, much harder than it has been in years, probably. Even the years before the pandemic weren't as much a buyer's market as this one has been. And there are reasons for the sudden embarrassment of riches that, of course, go beyond consumers being more picky and less willing to shell out big bucks for mid-product. And in many ways, they all tie back into March of 2020 when the world stopped spinning and its inhabitants were urged by political leaders, celebrities, and health professionals to stay at home. It may be ironic that being on lockdown and or quarantine caused such a sudden influx of activity on the sneaker market, especially considering the significant disruptions in the distribution of those sneakers around the world, but it did, and the combination of boredom Saving money that would usually be spent going out and stimulus checks turned out to be a perfect combination for increased interest in as well as the buying and eventual selling of sneakers of all sorts from all sorts of brands that had no business selling out and reselling for so much money on the secondary market, but did so anyway. In 2023, not just sneakerheads, but the whole world is still trying to catch up to itself after such an extended absence, and in many places, it's experiencing the combined effects of fast-rising inflation, not enough affordable housing, jobs that don't pay enough, and spending habits that have become significantly more conservative as a result. I mean, why the hell would I pay $1,000 for yet another color of a Travis Scott Air Jordan 1 Low? when I can barely afford my rent or the gas in my car, especially when I can buy the black toe Air Jordan 1 Low, a better, more classic colorway with way better materials than the Travis Scott version for retail or less, especially if I can't turn around and sell that Travis Scott sneaker for more than I paid for it, or worse, as much as I paid for it if I change my mind or need the money for something else one day. It's just not a gamble most people are willing to take. But beyond economic and societal factors, there's another reason more sneakers are suddenly more available than they have been in years, and that is because brands are making more of them to go around. 
There was a stretch of time from 2020 to 2022 that felt like every sneaker was released in a limited edition. And not just the collabs and one-offs, GR sneakers in so-so colorways were way too hard to get because the brands were making way too few to go around. Perhaps it had something to do with the distribution issues, but I think it had more to do with brands falling in love with the idea of hype. Nike loved seeing 3 million people sign up for a raffle for the latest Travis Scott sneakers that they had only made 30,000 pairs of. Adidas loved seeing some of the more popular Yeezys, a shoe that Kanye West once said would be available to anyone who wanted one, reselling for thousands because it kept their name in the news. It made them relevant and provided them with an endless supply of cultural currency with which to spend on shoes that were less popular, but were still selling out because nobody could get their hands on the more popular models and color configurations. But a byproduct of understuffing the market with your sneakers is that people will go elsewhere for them. And another industry which has experienced a boom as a result of limited edition kicks is replica sneakers, an industry mostly based in China in, or at the very least, alongside some of the very same factories that produce the real products for the real companies. The more limited and expensive sneakers got, the more people went looking for an alternative. And the more money that poured into China for reps, the better the reps got at imitating authenticity. So much so, in fact, that it's getting harder than ever to tell a real sneaker from a fake one these days. And even then, you'd need to go over them with a fine-tooth comb side by side to truly see the differences. This has created a headache for consumers who want to buy the real thing but keep getting duped by fakes they don't realize are fakes until after they've given their money to bad actors who they'll never hear from again. And it has created headaches for the brands themselves who, in their quest for the most hyped limited product, have created a monster which has become so good at replicating their copywritten designs that many consumers aren't even bothering to try for the real thing and just going straight to the rep, saving themselves hundreds or thousands on product that looks and functions well enough like the real thing. As I've said, for many of us, there isn't a lot of disposable income these days to go around. Why spend $300 on Yeezys when you can spend a third of that and not be able to tell the difference? So now the brands seem to be overcompensating. Even super hyped product like the Jordan 1 Chicago Lost and Found from last November and the Jordan 3 White Cement Reimagined from earlier this year were released in vast quantities with some news outlets claiming 500,000 pairs or more of each model to go around. But while a Jordan 1 Chicago and a Jordan 3 White Cement are always going to sell out no matter how many you make, this increase in production numbers has also caused a number of really good sneakers to sit. Outside of that White Cement, every other Jordan 3 that has released this year has barely moved the needle. Jordan 1s are more or less ignored unless they're a collab, and even those don't get much more attention than the GRs. Jordan 2s, which were projected to have a big year this year after the Chicago's released too much fanfare at the end of 2022, haven't really done anything. Jordan's 5s, 6s, and 7s, nothing. The Amamanier is releasing their take on the Jordan 5 in a few weeks, but even their Jordan 2s from last year are available for barely above retail, and their Jordan 12s from earlier this year are selling for almost $100 below retail, which is hard to believe for shoes that look great, are in great colors, and are made with premium materials inside and out. But I wouldn't want it to sound like I'm complaining. 
This is the world I've wanted to live in for as long as I've been interested in sneakers as more than just a vehicle to get me from point A to point B. A world where I get to be picky, where I get to be patient, where I don't have to buy a sneaker the day it comes out for fear that it will sell out and resell the next day for more than I'm willing to pay for it. Now I can wait and see if it goes on sale. And for some sneakers, like most of the New Balance and non-Yeezy Adidas ones, as well as most of the Jordans I mentioned or GR Air Maxes, I can wait until they go on sale. I just did this with a pair of Made in USA New Balance 996s in the classic gray colorway. They dropped as part of New Balance's gray day on May 12th for a price point of 230 Canadian, a lot of money for a GR New Balance retro, even ones with such nice colors and materials. So I waited. I set up a Google alert for when the sneakers went on sale and eventually they did and I was able to grab them for 150 bucks. You can do this with almost any sneaker you could want these days. If it isn't super limited like the Jordan 4 SBs were, if it isn't a hype beast release that sells for $1,000 resale no matter what color it drops in, like the Travis Scott Olives, or it isn't a special restock or one-off collab, then just wait. There's no reason to pay full price for something in the midst of market saturation while its stock is plummeting. Because I don't know how long this will last. Maybe the pandemic-fueled sneaker peak was a one-off and sneakers will go back to being something niche again. Or maybe the industry will pick back up once the brands figured out the magic number in terms of how many pairs to produce. But probably not. I think between people saving their money for more important things, sneaker reselling as a part-time job, and sneaker collecting as a newfound lifestyle, both experiencing a sharp decline, as well as replica sneakers inching ever closer to being one-to-one copies of the real thing, plus just the fact that I think people are experiencing retro fatigue and there not being many new sneaker designs that are exciting enough to make it into the news cycle for more than an afternoon. Sneaker consumerism will be a buyer's market for probably years to come, which is good for the culture. There's nothing fun about a few thousand bots gobbling up all the stock of the hottest sneakers and leaving those of us who actually want to wear the damn things continually grumbling about how we can never secure them for retail. Because despite what they thought during the pandemic, making more sneakers than you can sell is good business. Why would a brand sell 20,000 sneakers for $180 each when they can sell 500,000 sneakers for $180 each, even if it takes a little longer to get rid of them? I don't care how you do it. That math will always come out favoring the brand. And let's hope that they keep that same energy going forward. If this buyer's market never ends in sneaker culture, I will be only too happy. So there are my thoughts on where sneakers are at in 2023. Mostly positive, slightly negative, but as I've said, I'm loving where things are. I'm loving where things are going. And I'm excited about the sneakers we haven't seen yet that are set to release later on in the year and how available and easily attainable they're very likely going to be i have my heart in particular set on the jordan 11 dmp that's coming out this christmas and look forward to buying that and wrapping it and placing it under the christmas tree for myself in december 